Okay, just as we are getting ready to share from God's Word, I just want to give Joshua just a few moments just to, to tell you what he's been up to in this last year. Uh, for those of you who don't know Joshua, this is him home after his first year at Bible school, and uh, that was his first ever communion, by the way. What a great job. So Josh, come and share with us. So um, as Ken said, that's me just home from the first year at Mattersy. Um, for those of you that don't know, um, Mattersy is the Assemblies of God Bible College down in England, um, where I've been uh, doing theology and biblical studies since September. Um, we're incredibly blessed and privileged down at Mattersy to learn from some of the most intelligent theologians in the world, and that's not an exaggeration. Um, there's great men and women of God down there who could have well-paid jobs all over the globe, but instead they're locked away in tiny little dusty offices in the middle of nowhere to teach and train the next generation of Christian leaders. Um, a lot of it is, is, is all heavy study work. Um, there's a common saying down in Mattersy that a desire to preach without the desire to study is merely a desire to perform. And that's um, what, what they drum into us. Um, as I've said, we have the best Bible teachers in the country, um, and the teaching we get is truly priceless. Um, we see the Bible in a completely different light. Uh, my mind was blown in the very first lecture, and it still hasn't been fixed. <laughs> We're taught to uh, unpack the Bible and study the Bible in such a deep way and question everything. And by the end of the first week, I was questioning if I was even saved. I am. <laughs> Um, I don't really have time to explain in great detail about the lectures, but they are phenomenal. Uh, if you want to know more, come and talk to me um, about them. Um, really, the, the main focus of Mattersy is not the lectures and the studying and the essays, but it's, it's to prepare us. It's, it's a much greater purpose. Um, the main focus of Mattersy is to turn us into the, the most Christ-like leaders that we can possibly be. And that begins with growing and learning the same way Jesus did. The Bible doesn't give us a lot on Jesus' life before his ministry. But we do get one verse um, in Luke 2.52. We read that Jesus grew in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God and man. And these are the four areas that Marcy really pushes us. Um, wisdom I've kind of already covered in the lectures and the academic side of things. Um, growing in stature. Some of you have said that I've uh, lost a bit of weight while I've been away, um, and that's not an accident. Um, Jesus, with the sort of ministry he was doing and the work he was doing, he would have taken his health and his well-being seriously. He would have taken responsibility for his physicality. And following his examples, we have to make sure that our bodies are in the best condition they can be to complete the work we're called to do. Um, favor with God. Obviously, there's a big emphasis on that in Bible college. Um, not only are we taught by the lecturers, but we actually live with some of them. One, one of the lecturers loved it that much that he's moved in literally across the road. And we can't get rid of him. Um, but we see every single day in the dining room, as, as well as in the classroom, amazing examples of what Christian life should be like. Um, we're, we're really pushed be a bit cheeky here and say, we are pushed to be the Christians we're pretending to be. Um, and that really has been my biggest area of growth over the last year. 
Um, and then finally, we have uh, favor with man, which is the most difficult one. <laughs> Matrissey is a strange Christian bubble. We're literally trapped in a building with about 70 other Christians from different backgrounds, nationalities, and worst of all, different denominations. And we all have to get on and live with each other for the best part of three years. Um, you all know the hymn, How Beautiful Heaven Must Be. It's not heaven, but the Christians are all together, and it's certainly not beautiful. And that's uh, the, the toughest challenge with Mattersea, is, is just living there. Uh, so I'll wrap up there. Um, I want to thank everyone for their prayers and supports. Um, financially, it's a massive thing. Um, trusting in God for money can be scary, um, especially when you know that without it, you're in trouble. Um, but I know that God has moved and blessed me through a lot of people in this room. And uh, for that, I thank you. And more importantly, I thank God. Thank you, Joshua. It's a wonderful thing as a pastor to be able to, to mentor a young rising leader. It's a great honor to do things like that. And uh, I'm excited for what the future holds for you. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you for this wonderful, incredible, outrageous grace that you pour into our lives. Thank you for the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for promising, Lord Jesus, never to leave us nor forsake us. Thank you for promising a day will come when we will be with you in Father's house. Lord, how we long for that day. But in the time between now and then, Lord, make our hearts receptive to your word and our feet swift to be about your business. So open the ears of our understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing in our study of the book of Esther. And we've been looking, this is the third of five, maybe six sessions that we'll spend in the book of Esther. And so far in our story, okay, we've come to the point where things are, are pretty grim. Haman has maneuvered himself into King Xerxes' favor. He has, he has become almost mad with hatred towards Mordecai. And he's taken it to another level where he wants to destroy the entire Jewish people throughout 127 provinces of this incredible Persian empire that stretches from a way up in Iraq to a way down in Egypt. A massive swathe of land. Millions of people. And the king has written this edict that on a certain day, at a certain time, all the Jews will die. And this is what we call the law of the Medes and Persians. And in Persia, when a law was written by the king and sealed with a signet ring, it could not be changed, not even by the king himself. It stood forever. This is a horrendous thing that has just happened. Now, we pick up the story today. When Mordecai 
is desperate to do something about this. But before we go there, you're unique. Do you know that? You, you really are. I know it's hard to believe sometimes, but you are absolutely unique. Just give someone a little glance. Go on, do it. That's the only version of them that's ever existed in the entire course of human history. Now, you might be very grateful for that, or you might rejoice in that. I'll leave that between you and God. But that is the only version of that person, and you're the only version of you that there's ever been in the course of human history. It's amazing, isn't it? Your fingerprints, and get this, your toe prints, even the prints of your eyes, have never, ever been duplicated, ever, in the course of human history. That's amazing. There's only one of you. And you're not here by accident. God has made us unique for a purpose. We are part of His design. So if you are a believer, a follower of Jesus, who attends church week in, week out, and warms a chair or a pew, and that is it, wake up and smell the coffee. You are unique, and you're here for a reason. God has destiny for you. And that's what we're going to talk a little bit about this morning. History is full of the accounts of individuals who've made a difference. Just one man, just one woman, who's made a difference in the course of history. There have been great generals who've changed the shape of nations. There have been incredible doctors and wonderful scientists who have changed all sorts of things. There have been incredible composers who've brought amazing music into our world. There have been fantastic missionaries. Let's take David Livingston, for example, just down the road in Blantyre. Kath and I had the pleasure of working, sometimes it was a pleasure, of working a lot with the Nigerian churches over the years and the African churches over the years. And I need to tell you, Livingston is revered and loved in Africa because of his life as much as his message. When he died, I don't know if you know this, when he died, his body was carried 1,000 miles across the country to be put on a ship to be brought back. A thousand miles they carried him. Even today, they speak of the great missionary with incredible thanksgiving. A man who changed the course of a continent. The face of the church has also been changed by individuals down through the generations. Great names, there are many of them, like Tyndale, from whom we have our, our Bible. Thank God, a translator. Bunyan, or John Calvin even, who brought a new way of thinking to us. George Whitfield, who opened the Scriptures to so many people in the fields and open airs. The great John Wesley, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, Billy Graham. There are many, many, many names of great men and women who have stood alone and yet as an individual have turned the course of their generation. And you know, as you read the Bible, there are very few places you will find citywide evangelism. There are very few places you will find great national revivals. 
Most of what you read there has to do with individuals being used by God in their setting. It's amazing, isn't it? We can change the world one person at a time. We can do that. One of my favorite verses, and I, I, I say it all the time, you're probably bored with it now, is when Paul and Barnabas are coming to Thessaloniki, and some of the, the city nobles try for a, a civil injunction to stop them coming. And this is what they say to the magistrates, these men who've turned the world upside down are coming here also. All two of them cause such a panic. God uses individuals to change the course of history. And of course, the greatest individual of them all was the Lord Jesus. God loved our world so much that He sent His Son, Jesus. And the world changed forever because Jesus came. Well, do you know what? God has not done with using individuals. In 2 Chronicles 16 verse 9, we read this, the eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. Now, let me show that again. The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. Not those who just warm chairs. Those who are committed to the Lord are the people He's looking for. Dear brothers and sisters, we are followers of Jesus. We're either in it or we're not. There's no middle ground. The middle ground is called pretense. I quite liked what Josh said when he said something along the lines there of, you know, when they're making us into the, the Christians, we pretend we are. I thought that was a great statement. That's a, that's a good statement. And the eyes of the Lord are seeking across the whole earth for those whose hearts are committed to Him. Is your heart committed to Him this morning? Because He's looking for you. Are you willing to stand up and be counted? Haman's plan is afoot. Things are bad. A seemingly unstoppable law of the Medes and Persians is in place, and the day is coming when the Jews will die. That's the situation that we're picking up on. So in Esther chapter 4, verse 1 to 3, this is what we read. When Mordecai learned about all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on a burlap and ashes, and went out into the city crying with a loud and bitter wail. And he went as far as the gate of the palace, for no one was allowed to enter the palace gate while wearing clothes of mourning. And as news of the king's decree reached all the provinces, there was a great mourning among the Jews. They fasted, they wept and wailed, and many people lay in burlap and ashes. And here we see Mordecai holding nothing back. There is no attempt at false dignity here. He is crushed with grief at what is happening. This is horrendous, and he knows, he knows that he needs God to act in this situation. He holds nothing back. His grief pours out. Widespread mourning is heard throughout the entire empire. 
People are desperate. And in verse 4 to verse 8, this is what we read. When Queen Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was deeply distressed, and she sent clothing to him to replace the burlap, but he refused it, and Esther sent for Hatash, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed as her attendant. And she ordered him, go to Mordecai and find out what was troubling him and why he was in mourning. So Hatash went out to Mordecai in the square in front of the palace gate. And Mordecai told him the whole story, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. And Mordecai gave Hatash a copy of the decree issued in Susa that called for the death of all Jews. And he asked Hatash to show it to Esther and explain the situation to her. And he also asked Hatash to direct her to go to the king and beg for mercy and plead for her people. So Hatash entered, returned to Esther with Mordecai's message. You'll note that Mordecai carefully, carefully relates the situation, ever so carefully. He doesn't embellish it. He doesn't make it any more dramatic than it already is. He carefully lays the situation out before him. Now, we live in a day of a phenomenon called fake news. Very little of what we hear today is factual news. It's always got a spin on it. It's always got a slant on it. And sometimes it's just not true. The amount of conversations I've had, interestingly, with, with my son, and he'll say, Dad, what do you think about this? And I'll say, where did you get that from? And he'll relate where he heard it from, what news source. And when I look at it, it's just not true. It's not factual at all. Now, just the other day, we saw a great picture on the TV of President Trump. And as he's visiting, I think it was the Polish president, if I'm, if I'm not wrong. And the wife of the Polish president came to embrace the wife of the American president. What did the news say? She snubbed Trump by not shaking his hand. No, she didn't. She did what a wife would do. She went to embrace her opposite. That's what we do. But what did the news say? He was snubbed. It's not true. We've got to smarten up with what we've been fed. And Mordecai knew exactly that. And so he feeds to Esther nothing but facts. That's so important. Be careful what you say and how you say it. Don't put your spin on something. Tell the truth. That way, you'll never have to remember what you said. Well, in verses 9 through to verse 12, this is what we read. Then Esther told Hattach, go back and relay this message to Mordecai. All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die, unless the king holds out his golden scepter. Now, that was the law. Okay? And the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days. So Hattash gave Esther's message to Mordecai. Now, this was a huge risk for Esther. 
She's a young, a young girl, a young queen. And in the kingdom of the Persians, you could not approach the inner chamber of the king, the throne room, for want of a word. Uninvited. The penalty was instant death. And they had some very creative and colorful ways of carrying that out. The only exception was, had you been invited, or the king holds out his scepter to you, at which point you would approach and touch the end of it. Then you were invited to speak. There's a huge risk for Esther here on two fronts. One, she's about to lose her life if this goes wrong. And secondly, she's, she's in big trouble because her racial identity is about to be exposed. Up until now, the king did not know she was a Jew. We have a double-edged sword going on here for young Esther. This is an incredibly difficult situation. In verse 13 and 14, we read this. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise for some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. It's one of those moments, dear friends, it's a stand up, speak or die moment. And you know we live in such a generation today. We live in a generation where probably, like never before, God's people need to stand up and speak, or we're all going to die. This world is hurtling towards its conclusion. History is narrowing. Have you noticed that? It's coming towards a conclusion. We need to stand up and speak we are in a terrible, terrible state. The Word of God needs to reach into our society today. Please, stand up and speak up, and don't let those around you die. Who knows? Perhaps you're in the house you're in, the job you're in, the place you're in, the queue at the supermarket you were in for such a time as this. Perhaps that's exactly why God has called you. Will you stand up? Will you speak up? We see, even in the church across the world, an incredible selling out to the Word of God. It is time to stand up and speak out. Enough is enough. We contend for truth and liberty. Someone say, Amen. It's time to stand up. Don't just sit silently. I plead with you. In verse 16, we read this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it's against the law, I will go in and see the king. And if I must die, I will die. And Mordecai went away and did everything that Esther had ordered her. She steps up for such a time 
as that. Isaac Watts, in 1724, wrote the great hymn, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? Does anyone remember that old hymn? This is what one of the verses say. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? I will not fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name. Are you a soldier of the cross? Or are you a warmer of a seat? Will you stand up and fearlessly speak his name in your workplace, in your family, at the bus stop, in the street, in the supermarket? Does it matter if I get involved? Does it really matter if you get involved? Will it make a difference? Let's be honest about this. Are you willing to count your life as being for such a time as this? Are you willing? There are dysfunctional families all around us. There's poverty. There's inequality. There's persecution. There's homelessness. There's hunger. There's refugees. There's orphans. There's human tracking. Abortion is out of control. We are contending in our parliament to allow the murder of the unborn up till the point of birth. It is wrong, and we need to stand up and speak up, lest a whole generation die around us in their ignorance and in their sin. I do not want the Lord to say to me, you wicked, lazy servant. Do you know the only thing He's asked you to do is love Him with all that you've got and love others likewise. That's it. That's all He asked us to do. Everything we do, as nice as our building is, He never asked us to do this. As lovely as our chairs are, He never asked us to do that either. All the meetings we go to, He didn't ask us to do that either. He asked us to love Him with all that we have, and He asked us to get into society and preach the gospel and make disciples and baptize them. That's it. But we, the church of God, in whichever flavor there is, has spent our time and our talent and our treasure doing everything but that and falling out with each other. And we have not realized that we're here for such a time as this. This town, this country, needs Jesus. It needs Jesus. Our governments are out of control. They are clueless. We need God to intervene in our situation. How much longer will we replace one failed human system with another before we realize we need the power of God to come and touch the hearts of men and women? Because that's where we're broken. Politics is not broken. The human heart is broken. Will we stand up for such a time as this, or will we continue to live our isolated, secluded, comfortable lives? Does it matter if I get involved? Absolutely. There is no plan B. We are it. This generation is the only response God has to this generation. This generation of believers is God's tool for reaching this generation of the lost. There's no plan B. We're it. And it's only when we move from the safe harbor of theory 
to the risky world of reality that we start to make a difference. Do you know, the church has become great in theory, but absolutely awful in practice. We've got a great theory of evangelism, but we've got no witnessing going on. We've got great theories of prayer, but our prayer meetings are empty. We've got great moral theories, but no social action. That's what's happening in the 21st century church. We're not rewarded for theory. We're rewarded for action. It was the man who did nothing with his talent, who heard wicked, lazy servant. It was the other two who invested their talent, who heard well done, good and faithful servant. Esther calls for Mordecai to rally the people to fast and pray for her. In Isaiah 40, verse 31, we read the famous passage, but those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles, and they will run and not grow weary, and they'll walk and not faint. Four amazing things are ours when we learn to wait upon the Lord. Firstly, we gain new strength. He gives us second wind. Secondly, we get a clearer perspective. We get an eagle's eye view. So often, life is like the twisty road, but that's not how the eagle sees the road. It has this wonderful panorama seen from above. And so can we when we learn to wait on the Lord. We store up extra energy. We run and we do not grow weary. And we deepen our perseverance. We walk and we don't faint. Strength and perspective and energy and perseverance are all byproducts of waiting on the Lord. In Esther 5, 1 and 3, she takes her stand. On the third day of the feast, Esther put on her royal robes and entered the inner court of the palace, just across from the king's hall. And the king was sitting on his royal throne, facing the entrance. And when Queen Esther standing there in the when he saw Queen Esther standing there in the inner court, he welcomed her and held out the gold scepter to her. So Esther approached and touched the end of the scepter. And the king asked her, What do you want, Queen Esther? What's your request? I will give it to you, even if it's half the kingdom. She takes her stand. She understands the importance of timing. She keeps her heart free from vengeance. She's waiting on God every step of the way here. And when we don't wait on the Lord, brothers and sisters, we rush ahead and we act rashly and we say things we shouldn't say and we get the wrong end of the stick all the time. And we cause enormous upset with one another because we don't wait on the Lord. We react emotionally. And that's craziness to do that. So here is Esther. She's not shooting from the hip. She's not regretting what she's going to say. And she doesn't point the finger at Haman. Are you hearing me? She does not use the moment to point the finger. Look at this in verse 4 to verse 8. 
And Esther replied, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for the king. And the king turned to his attendants and said, tell Haman to come quickly to a banquet as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to Esther's banquet. And while they were drinking wine, the king said to Esther, now tell me what you really want. Can you see how God has engineered this situation? From a possible loss of life by approaching uninvited. She's now sitting with the king and he says, come on, Esther, what is it you really want? And Haman is right there beside her. Verse 9 to verse 14 really opens this up for us. Look at this. Haman was a happy man. And as he left the banquet, but when he saw Mordecai sitting at the palace gate and not standing up or trembling nervously before him, he became furious. And however, he restrained himself and went on home. And then Haman gathered together his friends and Zaresh his wife and boasted to them about his great wealth and his many children. And he bragged about the honors the king had given him and how he'd been promoted over all the other nobles and officials. And then Haman added, and that's not all. Queen Esther invited only me and the king himself to the banquet. She prepared for us. We would basically say, what a bohead. So full of himself, unbelievable arrogance and delusion of who he really is. Incredible. And then she's invited me to dine with her and the king again tomorrow. And then he added, but this is all worth nothing as long as I see Mordecai the Jew just sitting there at the palace gate. So Haman's wife, Zarish, and all his friends suggested, set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall. Put a comma there. In your Bible, it might say build a gallows. The word gallows there is not the word for a hanging post. The Persians did not hang people. They liked to impale their victims. And it was a torturous manner of death. And they'd stick you on a sharpened pole, pull you onto it, and leave you wriggling till you died. Can you imagine the torturous, undignified barbarism of that? That's what they did. And here she's saying, don't just impale them on any old pole, stick them 75 feet up in the air so everyone can see them screaming and writhing for miles around. What's wrong with these people? This is a crazy family. Set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall, and in the morning ask the king to impale Mordecai on it. And when this is done, you can go on your merry way to the banquet with the king. And this pleased Haman, and he ordered the pole set up. Who wants her as your wife? Who wants him as your husband? What a crazy family. Well, you know, dear friends, there's four lessons for us here that I want to just bring out in conclusion today, and we'll continue next week with this. The first is this. When we are preparing for an unprecedented event, and I think the annihilation of an entire group of people falls into that category. Would you agree? An unprecedented event. We need to wait upon the Lord before acting. We're way too quick to take the emotional response, to take offense, to demand rights, to fall out with each other, to criticize, to fault find. We're way too quick to do that. We need to learn a wait upon the Lord. 
before acting. And while we're waiting, God will work in our patience, our trust, and our circumstances. Look what he did for Esther. She waited for the right moment, and she got incredible access to the king. Secondly, when we're dealing with an unpredictable person, we need to count on the Lord to open hearts and doors. When we focus on God's presence, He will become much more important than the circumstances we're struggling with. When our eyes are on the Lord, they're in the right place. He will take care of that which is happening around us. Hezekiah is a great example of that. When faced with a, a very unpleasant Assyrian army coming to kill him and take his gold and his people, Hezekiah was more concerned that they were blaspheming God than he was about anything that could possibly happen to himself. That's what he said. In praying to God, he said, Lord, I'm concerned about your name. His focus was on God, and God obliterated the Assyrians as a result. We've got to learn to focus on the Lord. So when dealing with an unpredictable person, you count on God to open doors for you and work on hearts. And thirdly, when working through unpleasant situations, trust the Lord for patience, enduring patience, timing is as crucial as action. Everything doesn't need to be done now. Timing, God's timing, is crucial and just as important as any actions we take. Pace yourself, church. Patience. And finally for this morning, when we're standing against an unprincipled enemy, you ask the Lord for invincible courage. That's what He did with Esther invincible courage. Now, you remember, we're not dealing with super saints and amazing spiritual people here. We're dealing with regular people like you and me, your knees knock with the same terror yours and mine do. God strengthened her to be the answer to the need, and He'll do exactly the same for you. Shall we pray? Father, we give you thanks for the book of Esther. And Father, we ask you please, in Jesus' name, we ask you please, would you help us to, to hear your word? Would you help us please to understand it? Would you help us to be patient? Would you help us to look to you always and make your focus? And Lord God, we pray in Jesus' name, please Lord, above all, would you help us to position ourselves fully front and center before you, with our knees bent and dependent upon you. In Jesus' name, amen.